If you're a regular listener to the Van City podcast and believe in what the church is doing, consider supporting Van City financially. Full disclosure, our church is small and in the throes of an ongoing struggle to make budget and to grow in the spiritual discipline of generosity. If you want to help out, visit vancity.church/give. I'm Levi Warren, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part six in the series, James, Forgetting Your Own Face. James has a lot to tell us about the inseparability of our faith and our actions, and included in our actions are the words that we speak. Are our tongues animated by the destroying forces of hell or by the spirit of King Jesus? Imagine, if you will, a young Levi, me. <laughs> Go figure. It actually shouldn't be too difficult since, believe it or not, I've been told I haven't changed all that much since my childhood. Uh, in fact, a few years ago, I was sitting outside a coffee shop, like I'm prone to do. I'm sure you guys have seen me out there. When a couple of older ladies approached, and uh, as they were heading inside, one of them looked at me and asked, is your name Levi? And I said, yes, and I was kind of hesitant, figuring that here was someone I probably should have known, but simply couldn't place, and whose name I couldn't remember, because that also happens a lot with me. And uh, what she said next kind of surprised me. She said, I was your kindergarten teacher at Hauk Elementary School. Yeah, it was weird. I thought, my goodness, how on earth did you recognize me after 30 years? I wouldn't have known this lady from any other person walking down the block. I didn't recognize her at all. But here's the thing. She said she recognized me because, and I quote, you look exactly the same. (laughs) That's what I thought. Exactly the same. I mean, dang, like that's not really what a guy in his mid thirties wants to hear. You still look like a kindergartner. Of course, I was cordial and it kind of became just an interesting and silly story until recently I was showing my youngest nieces some old home videos, and uh, well, I'll let you guys be the judge. right. Exactly the same. And I mean, come on, who could forget moves like that, right? After my youngest niece saw this, uh, sans the Curb Your Enthusiasm soundtrack, of course, I asked her, what do you think? Do I look the same or do I look different? She paused for a moment thinking and said, well, you're taller. (laughs) And that was in fact me in October of 1990 at age six, just about 32 years ago clearly still so full of life and joy. I had, uh, yeah, that's me. That's the same year. I had just started the first grade, actually, and so it would have basically looked exactly like this to my kindergarten teacher. Uh, She saw me in my 30s and said, yep, that's him, all right. It was kind of brutal. But that video is not the point. Really, I just wanted to set the scene 
uh, for a different story about me when I was a kid. So imagine young Levi, it's summertime and my family is loading up the old Nissan Sentra and we're hitting the road. We would do this often during summer vacation. We'd usually make our way over to the coast and then head down the 101 camping along the way. And we'd uh, visit all the interesting, you know, slightly bizarre roadside attractions, your giant Paul Bunyan statues, walk through wild safari parks and, you know, those massive redwood trees with the holes in them big enough to drive your car through. Typical road trip fare for a young family in the early 90s. And I remember one uh, specific day of camping, especially, I'm not sure where we were exactly, but I can distinctly picture the campsite and the surrounding wooded areas in my mind. My sister and I loved to sit around the campfire at night, my dad telling us scary stories. Uh, There was the one about the ghost lady buying bottles of milk to feed her baby that had been buried alive. No, it's creepy. (laughs) This This was my childhood. Or uh, my favorite, little Johnny, who stole the liver from a fresh corpse to take home for his family's dinner and who uh, was then stalked through the night by this ghoulish voice demanding the return of its consumed organ. I've told some of your kids the story and I think they like it. I'm not, I don't know. Uh, Well, I love loving the campfire time so much. I decided on this particular trip that I wanted to have my very own fire all for myself. I had been wandering in the wooded area behind our campsite during the day and had discovered what I thought was the ideal spot for a super secret, ultra cool campfire. It was this old tree stump, uh, slowly rotting away and slightly hollowed out in the middle. And it looked like a great natural fire pit, I thought. So I went in search of matches. And of course I knew not to play with matches. And I knew that what I was doing was not exactly on the up and up. So I had to sneak a box of matches from my family's campsite. And then there I was in the forest, in the dry summer heat, with the potential for fire right at my fingertips. I gathered up what I figured would be some good kindling, some handfuls of twigs and leaves, piles of dried up pine needles, and I placed it all in the hollowed tree stump. And then came the deed itself. I retrieved a match from the box. I struck it on the side and couldn't start a fire for the life of me. At least not before I was caught. And uh, it was over, the jig was up, no forest fire had been started. And honestly, thank God, uh, when I think back on the potential of what could have happened in that scenario, I am extremely grateful that I was apprehended by my parents before I could get a fire started. Uh, You guys may remember just five years ago, uh, in September of 2017, how the Eagle Creek fire began in the Columbia River Gorge when a 15-year-old boy from here, Vancouver, Washington, Uh, lit and threw a firecracker during a burn ban. For three months, the fire raged on and 50,000 acres were burned. In fact, as late as May of the next year in 2018, some eight months later, parts of the fire were found to be still smoldering. And that teen found responsible was sentenced to probation and community service and was ordered to pay more than, get this, $36 million in restitution and I was worried about my student loan debt. Good grief, I mean, seriously. But think about it, just like that, with a careless toss, a raging inferno begins. 
Consider, Jacob wrote in his first century letter to the Christian communities scattered throughout the ancient Near East, what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. Open your Bibles to James chapter three. We are in a summer long series in the book we call James. And really it's a letter as a piece of mail written by one of Jesus's brothers, Iacobos or Jacob. Uh, Throughout church history and via shifts in language over the centuries, Jacob has become mostly known to us as James. It's a whole thing. You guys can go and listen to the first podcast of this series if you missed it. Uh, At any rate, Jacob in his letter has been instructing these first century followers of Jesus about the inseparability of faith and deeds. Early on in his letter, he says, anyone who listens to the word, but does not do what it says, is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. And just a little while later, he puts it even more bluntly. He says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And believe me, I get this. Uh, You know, it doesn't sit well with us a lot of times. You may have, like me, grown up in the church milieu that touts the sinner's prayer methodology of salvation, meaning that you say what basically amounts to this magic incantation at any point in your life, and no matter what uh, you do, no matter how you live from that moment on, your salvation has become this sort of inalienable right. You are saved by grace, but your henceforth faith is purely a matter of mental assent, if that. But that's not the view of Jacob or the other New Testament authors or even of Jesus himself. I am the vine, Jesus said, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned." Now we can say all day long that we believe in Jesus, but if our lives don't evidence that belief with fruit, with the produce as it were of our deeds, then in Jesus's words, we are like a branch that is cut off from the vine and destroyed in a fire. And I mean, shoot, that's intense, but it's true. And it's this truth that Jacob is communicating to his readers. And tonight he's gonna give us one litmus test on how to gauge the synchronizing of our faith and deeds and it's about our tongues. How are you guys doing? You still with me? I got a woo from Lexi. That's good, great. So would you guys stand with me as an act of reverence for a reading of scripture? We're gonna read from James three, uh, starting with verse one. It says, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways, Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. 
It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With a tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. These words are inspired by God. Guess can take a seat. Now, first off, trust me, the irony of that opening line is not lost on me. Not many of you should become teachers. <laughs> Thanks. That was, a, that was a good first teaching. Uh, while I have been here at Van City, uh, like Josh was saying, since the first official Sunday more than six years ago, this is my first time to get up here on a Sunday night to teach. And in fact, it's my first time teaching at the main gathering for any church. And who knows, perhaps I should have taken Jacob's warning a little more to heart. Only time will tell, I guess. I'll know when that judgment hits, I assume. We'll see. I, something's gonna happen. But hey, like all of our teachers here at Van City, I sent this teaching ahead of time to the overseers and the deacons for feedback and correction. That's our process. And this all made the cut. So if I go down, I'm taking them with me. That's... Just be prepared. <laughs> the fact is, though, that this is a sober, uh, a sober warning. And honestly, not just for those who are teachers or in some form of leadership, whether that's in the church or otherwise. Yes, those who lead have a very real responsibility and will have to give an account for what they have done as leaders. As the author of Hebrews said, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. So you mean I'm gonna have to give an account for what I'm saying up here? Yikes. Why was it that you were letting me do this, Josh? Where's Josh? Thanks a lot. But get this, good news for me, you all are on the hook too. Because Jesus himself said to all of his followers, not just those who are teachers or leaders, but I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words, you will be acquitted and by your words, you will be condemned. Oh my goodness. Look, both Jacob and Jesus are saying, how we speak, what comes out of our mouths has the very power of life and death in it. And if you claim to follow Jesus, you need to understand this, but it's hard. And Jacob knows this. In fact, it's so difficult, he says, that a person could basically be totally perfect without fault in any other way, but they're still not gonna be able to fully control their tongue. If you can perfectly control your tongue, you can do anything. You've made it, but you can't. At least not on your own. And we'll get to that later. Perhaps the most frustrating thing is that, like Jacob says, the tongue is such a small part of the body. But boy, does it make great boasts and boy, can it set some fires. Our small tongues are like the little bit that you put in the mouth of a horse. And by exerting just a little force on the reins one way or the other, a rider can control this great big animal. 
Or let's think even bigger, Jacob says. The person helming a ship can control this massive floating structure just by the manipulation of a tiny little rudder. And yes, there are strong winds outside the pilot's control that drive the ship forward, but still with that small rudder, they can harness the great power of the wind and make that ship go where they want. And then there's the fire. Perhaps the most visceral of Jacob's metaphors for the tongue is that it's like a very small spark. You might not think it's much. You speak a little word and maybe at first it's only this little glowing ember, but pretty soon it catches in the dry brush and it spreads and it consumes and it rages unchecked, destroying everything in its path. A world of suffering and annihilation powered by the very fires of hell itself. Now, don't think of hell as some medieval torture chamber populated by scaly demons and ruled by a mildly creepy middle-aged dude with a goatee and pitchfork wearing red pajamas. For some reason, that's like our, our pop culture icon of the devil, I guess, I don't know. Much of what uh, modern pop culture actually believes about hell is informed more by uh, Renaissance paintings, Dante's Inferno, and stuff like heavy metal album covers. Uh, more, more so than it's informed by the actual Bible. And the word that gets translated as hell here in Jacob's letter is actually uh, a Greek word, Gehenna, which is itself a transliteration of the Hebrew phrase, Gai Hinnom, or Gai Ben Hinnom, which literally means the valley of the son of Hinnom. It's a place, a real place on earth, just outside the city of Jerusalem in Israel. And in the history of the Israelites, the Valley of Hinnom had been a real place where great atrocities had taken place. In their abandonment of the covenant of Yahweh, the Jewish people had instead worshiped other gods, Baal and Molech, to name a couple, uh, by performing ritualistic human sacrifices and using fire to burn their children in Gai Hinnom, Gehenna. Now that's true hell on earth. This from 2 Chronicles 28. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of Yahweh. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and also made idols for worshiping the Baals. He burned sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and sacrificed his children in the fire engaging in the detestable practices of the nations Yahweh had driven out before the Israelites. Or this from Jeremiah 32. They set up their vile images in the house that bears my name, that is the name of Yahweh, and defiled it. They built high places for Baal in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to sacrifice their sons and daughters to Molech. Though I never commanded, nor did it enter my mind that they should do such a detestable thing and so make Judah sin. The prophets then also use the very real place of Gehenna as a warning to describe the type of destruction uh, and consequences that would befall those who rejected Yahweh and who committed injustices and evils against their neighbors. Uh, here's another longer passage, uh, once again from Jeremiah. It says, this is what Yahweh says. Go and buy a clay jar from a potter, take along some of the elders of the people and of the priests and go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnom near the entrance of the potsherd gate. There proclaim the words I tell you 
and say, hear the word of Yahweh, you kings of Judah and people of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Listen, I am going to bring a disaster on this place that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle for they have forsaken me and made this place, made this a place of foreign gods. They have burned incense in it to gods that neither they nor their ancestors nor the kings of Judah ever knew. And they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. They have built the high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as offerings to Baal, something I did not command or mention, nor did it enter my mind. So beware, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when people will no longer call this place Topheth or the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the Valley of Slaughter. Now this is horrifying. Jeremiah goes on to say that the violences and injustices the people of Israel have inflicted on the innocent and vulnerable are going to be rebounded on their own heads as a consequence. Again, this is the perpetuation of the cycle of hell on earth. And it's the very imagery that Jesus himself takes up and uses to describe the fate of those who reject the ways of Yahweh, decide to define good and evil on their own terms and live in a state of injustice, apathy and hatred toward their brothers and sisters. He says they are liable to the judgment of hell. Again, that's Gehenna, what has become this symbolic image to represent the consequence of utter destruction for those who choose to turn away from the God who created them. In fact, he says that if you live in this way, not only are you subject to the destruction that hell ultimately brings, but it's as if your very life is being powered and animated by the evil spiritual forces of hell. You are actually spreading hell in the here and now. Listen to this woe he pronounces over the corrupt spiritual leaders of Israel. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and prophecies, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. And calling these religious leaders children of hell, he's essentially saying, you have taken on the very characteristics of hell as your identity. Gehenna, the valley of slaughter, rife with injustice and child sacrifice, death and suffering. This corrupt religious leader, Jesus says, describes you. And woe to you because you're teaching your converts to be twice as much a child of the valley of slaughter as you are. All these stories from the prophets, from Jesus about the perpetuation of hell on earth would have been in the back of Jacob's mind as he wrote his letter. It's what he's thinking of when he warns his readers that the tongue itself can be set alight by the fires of hell. The power of fire and death that we hold in our tongues is the same destroying fire of hell that the prophets and Jesus warned of. And we can spread it in this place, in the here and now. And just like Jacob, Jesus takes very seriously the issue of a loose and hateful tongue. Listen to this from Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Okay, fair enough, we think. But he goes on, I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which is an Aramaic term of contempt, 
is answerable to the court and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now listen, maybe you're thinking Jacob and Jesus sure are given a lot of credit to the tongue, but the tongue is just a tongue, right? I mean, it doesn't have a mind of its own. It's not the one calling the shots. And you're right. The tongue here is itself a symbol that represents the outworkings of our interior life. It's as if the tongue is a a bridge, so to speak, from our interior world to the exterior world, a bridge that allows the condition of our hearts, good or bad, to be released into the world. Again, Jesus uses the metaphor of producing good or bad fruit for determining the inner condition of our hearts. And this time he includes a very fitting line at the end. He says in Luke 6, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Is your heart full of love and life and peace of the ways of Jesus? Or is your heart full of death and hellfire? According to Jesus and Jacob, how you speak will offer proof one way or the other. But why? I mean, why does Jesus and Jacob, why do they toe such a hard line when it comes to our words? Uh, They're just words after all, right? Now, sure, Jesus said that if we even call our neighbor a fool, we're basically murdering them in our hearts, but come on, we think we're not really murdering them, right? It's not as if we're actually literally snuffing the life out of another person. But here's what Jacob says. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, My brothers and sisters, this should not be. We should care how our words affect our brothers and sisters because they are people who have been made in the image of God. You know, it's interesting here. Jacob actually has a few lines that conjure up a lot of imagery relating to the creation narrative and the nature and purpose of humanity that's found in Genesis. And it's like he's saying, look, God gave us humans a task when he blessed us in the garden. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And we have all kinds of animals, Jacob says, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But remember that serpent from the garden, the accuser, the snake, the father of lies, he's still animating our tongues if our hearts are far from the Lord. No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Our tongues are just like that serpent hiding in the garden, waiting to ambush those who are made in God's image. But again, why does this matter? Sure, people are made in God's image, but they're not God themselves. True, But listen to this from New Testament scholar, Peter H. Davids. 
In James' day, the king or emperor would set up his statue in the cities of his realm. If anyone insulted or cursed the statue, they were treated as if they had cursed the emperor to his face, for the statue was the image of the emperor. Therefore, the insulting of a person made in God's image is like insulting God himself. This duality, two different and contradictory words coming out of the same mouth is a type of hypocrisy. Theologian N.T. Wright puts it this way. If someone turns out to be pouring out curses, cursing other humans who are made in God's likeness, then one must at least question whether their heart has been properly cleansed rinsed by God's powerful spirit. And if that isn't the case, it turns out that the tongue isn't simply a private world of injustice. It is getting its real inspiration from hell itself. And listen, here's the thing. It might be a bit easier to spot the outright curses that are welling up in our hearts against another person. And maybe we have a slightly better chance of not speaking those. But remember that Jesus said we would have to give an account of, as the NIV has it, every empty word we have spoken. That phrase, every empty word, can also be translated as every careless word. Our carelessness does not go overlooked. And our carelessness uh, can have real damaging impact on others. A few weeks ago, I was once again sitting outside the coffee shop. Again, I do this often, in case you were wondering. Uh, when an acquaintance of mine happened to be walking by, uh, this person knows that I work here at Van City as the director of worship, and we have some mutual friends, including other Van City folk. Uh, they themselves don't attend here, though, in case you were wondering. Uh, and being on friendly terms, we began a conversation. That conversation, though, took what was, for me, kind of a weird turn when this person said they thought it odd that the church would pay me to do my job. That my job essentially was not of high enough value to be worth compensation, and really I should just do it all for the sake of pure joy. And I know, I was there. <laughs> Furthermore, they said, others in leadership at Van City were prone to some wacky ideas. I'll leave that to your imagination as to who that could be. Maybe it would be beneficial for us to just dissolve and be absorbed by another church that has less extreme views when it comes to following Jesus. Again, weird conversation outside a coffee shop. And again, I tried to be cordial, but I'll be honest, on the inside, I was very discouraged and hurt and angry. Because here's the thing, you know, on the surface, this person's demeanor had an air of good-natured ribbing, kind of. And to be fair, looking back, I don't think this person was setting out to, you know, speak a fiery hellstorm of curses over me. Uh, I hope they weren't. Rather, maybe, I think, they were just careless. You know, they didn't think through the consequences of how their careless words would affect me because this person didn't know my full story. And my history with similarly discouraging words spoken over me, not just by acquaintances, but by those who were my leaders and mentors and close friends. Hurtful, painful, death-inducing words that cut deep at my own sense of value and self-worth and giftings and ability to serve God. 
You know, words that 15 or 20 years ago, I deeply struggled to let go of and to recognize for the lies that they were. And honestly, if this person had spoken these words to me, you know, even 10 years ago, they might've held a greater power over me than they did during that conversation a few weeks back. But I still felt them, those Gehenna words, those hell words. They turned what had up to that point been a very pleasant day, ornamented with points of worship and contemplation and intimacy with God into an internal mire of irritation and self-doubt. And then as I tried to process everything with God, I felt the spirit lead me into a place of conviction. Yes, conviction. You see in that moment, processing the careless words of that other person that they spoke over me, I thought, oh man, is that me? Like, have I been that person? How many times have I carelessly spewed out words over another person without recognizing the hell and destruction I was unleashing on them? And furthermore, how many times have I purposefully said something to demean or degrade a fellow person who has been made in the image of God? I know that I have done that. And I know as well that even if I haven't spoken those words out loud, I have let those words stew and steep and ferment in my heart that I have inwardly cursed my brothers and sisters who have been made in the image of God, that I have have let the fires of hell run rampant in my interior life, while at the same time, with a breath of hypocrisy, I have said, praise God. And as I uh, sat with God that day and processed those words spoken over me, I prayed, God, please forgive me and help me to not be that kind of person. Yes, I do want my tongue to speak from the overflow of my heart, but I want my heart to be full of the fruit of the spirit that comes from abiding in the vine of King Jesus. And I honestly believe I can say with integrity that I have forgiven that person because I know I also need forgiveness for that very same thing. The fact is we each need to take responsibility for our hurtful and careless words. You know, rather than trying to justify or defend them or trying to sweep them under the rug as if they are of no consequence, we need to recognize the damage that they have caused. And we need to do the hard work of confession, repentance and reconciliation. And this is a mark of emotional health and spiritual maturity. When we are serious about following Jesus, we will be serious about the words that we speak. And the spirit of Jesus will ask us to take an account of those words. And listen, we should never assume that someone knows we didn't mean it when we have spoken hurtful words over them. And maybe in truth, we didn't. Maybe we didn't mean it, but we're still responsible for those words. So, When we know we have wronged, we repent. We confess, we apologize to those we have hurt and we step into forgiveness. Hopefully forgiveness from those whom we have hurt, but certainly forgiveness from God whose mercy triumphs over judgment. But beyond confessing the careless and hurtful words that we have spoken in our spiritual maturity, we also learn to confront the careless words spoken by others. Again, we can't assume that someone knows they have hurt us. Maybe they also didn't mean it or thought it was all in good jest, but still for their own personal growth, 
they need to understand the power that their careless words have over others. And please, please hear me in this. We do not confront with an attitude of self-righteousness or hatred or anger, but with a sense of compassion, humility, love, and gentleness. Because when we confront the hellish words of others, just as when we confess and repent of our own words, we're working to build up and to bless and to affirm the image of God that is in ourselves and in them. We bless and do not curse. Just as words have the power to speak death and destruction and hell over others, our words also have the ability to speak life and healing and restoration. The simple act of confession, of speaking out loud our repentance and desire for forgiveness and restoration can go a long way in bringing healing and blessing to our relationships with those we have sinned against. But how do we actually become people who can control the tongue? Because according to Jacob, no human being can tame the tongue. And he's right. No human being in and of themselves has the power to tame the tongue. But I'm reminded of what Jesus said when questioned about the near impossibility of the rich being able to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. It comes back to abiding in the vine of Jesus and being empowered by his spirit. As we spend time with Jesus, growing in our intimacy with him, we become like him in our hearts and our inner character. We become people who are filled with the fruit that is produced by the spirit's presence within us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we are transformed by the power of the spirit to be people who can do the kinds of things that King Jesus does. And then with God, it's possible for us to quench the hellfire of our untamable tongues, to stop being people who unleash death with our words and to become people whose words bring blessing and healing and life. Holy Spirit, help us to do this. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.